0: You're listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside.
1: Rootbound is brought to you by Rocket Greens, the salad green that will punch you in the face. Rocket! It's just arugula.
0: To another edition of Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. My name is Steve, and today I would like to talk about a family of plants. And let's just all go back to uh, you know middle school biology class to remind ourselves of the taxonomic system and where family lies in that. So we're talking about domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So we're talking about a family of plants here it's kind of three up from the most specific way to describe a living thing and the family i want to talk about today is asteraceae 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 i'm pretty bad at this latin pronunciation but i think it's asteraceae 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 i think that's it i looked up a bunch of stuff on the internet and i think a- a- asteraceae asteraceae is the best way to say it so Asteraceae. That is the family of plants that is also known as the daisy family, and this family includes lots of plants. It's it's one of the biggest plant families out there, and it it's neck and neck with the orchid family, and it consists of 10% of all flowering plants are in the Asteraceae, Asteraceae family. Um, so it's a really big family of plants. Those uh, flowers. Some of the common flowers the family includes are sunflower, daisy, aster, dandelion, dahlia, chrysanthemum, and edelweiss. There's a lot more than that. And uh, one little thing that I learned here is the the is the distinguishing characteristic of the Asteraceae family <laughs> is that they have composite flowers. In fact, this family is sometimes called the compositae family. And composite flower means is each singular flower is made up of hundreds of little of little florets. And I think this is very easy to see if you look at a sunflower. And all those places when you look at a sunflower where the sunflower seeds end up developing, at each place where there is a sunflower seed there's actually a little floret. And if you look up closely, you can see there's a little tiny flower within that big flower. And that is what the distinguishing characteristic of the Asteraceae family is, oh, I nailed the pronunciation that time. So anyway, that's Asteraceae, and now it's time to hear from our guest. The composites are characterized by the grouping of many small flowers in a single head. The dandelion is a member of the composite family. It has about 100 tiny flowers packed tightly together to form a single head. Hey, Christian, how's it going? Not bad.
1: How are you? Pretty good. Do you have a, a plant to tell us about? I do. I picked uh, a plant that was sort of easy, I guess, for me, rele- relevant to uh, my family history, which is the Edelweiss.
0: Cool. I that's, That is a very cool plant. You know, I used to live in Switzerland, so that is a plant that I
1: like. Right. And actually, when I thought about it and I was doing a little research, I had, no, I had forgotten. Now I remember, yes, you lived in Switzerland. <laughs> Because I remember a wonderful anecdote about H.R. Giger. Oh, yes. Uh, the great Swiss artist. But uh, I'd forgotten that, actually. My family, um, my grandmother comes from Vienna, Austria. And so growing up, there was like... This, my father's family all comes from Germany, although northern Germany, uh, where I think the Edelweiss is sort of irrelevant. But it was like the, you know, almost like a logo for relevant family history and my grandmother's sort of favorite beautiful flower you know she was always talking about austria and the alps and and blah blah um but actually a neat thing about the edelweiss for me is that my mother at some point in during my teenage years got into um trough gardening you know about that okay.
0: maybe maybe you can explain it i don't think so new, actually
1: Basically, she and her girlfriends would get together on the weekends and mix cement like, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe typically, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, suburban housewives like don't typically do that kind of thing. But they would yeah, get together yeah. and make like this special mixture um, of cement and they would build these troughs. And trough gardening basically is like, I don't want to compare it to bonsai just because there's so much you know, real tradition and, and, uh, protocol. I think that defines what bonsai is, but it's like miniature gardening. And the whole thing about it is getting these super miniature versions of not just like trees and shrubs, but any kind of plants and flowers. Apparently they all exist.
0: Okay. So, and what is the, the cement dude? Is it like, the, how does that, how does that make them tiny?
1: Well, I don't think it makes them tiny. It's like, they come tiny. But it's, you build this cement trough and the cement is like, it makes me think of bonsai actually, because it's made of some special mixture, you know, has moss mixed into it and stuff like that. So there's something about it that's particularly, you know, accommodating to gardening. Uh, And it's, it's potted plants, but they're all teeny tiny plants. So you build these teeny weeny little landscapes And the amazing thing about it is, you know, my mother would always say, oh no, she would always deny like, oh, it's not bonsai
0: because she didn't Mm want to
1: seem like a poser or something like that Uh uh because she wasn't really doing bonsai, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, to me, it was like bonsai. She had these remarkable tiny little Japanese maple trees and teeny weeny little, all kinds of neat little boxwoods and all kinds of things that you might normally think of as bonsai style. But then she would build these little alpine style landscapes with like teeny gravel you know little teeny shrubs and plants and she cultivated well no no no. i shouldn't say she cultivated but she arranged in her landscape these little tiny edelweiss flowers and it always made me laugh because you think of like alpine growth as being sort of stunted size plants Uh (laughs) uh yeah and an edelweiss in it in and of itself is an alpine flower, regardless. But she had like the right. alpine version of the alpine flower.
0: Very interesting. <laughs> because it was wow. really, really small. That's really cool. Wow. Um, I guess you know I never thought about like cultivating edelweiss, and I never expected like, yeah, I it was. It was grown in Pittsburgh, I guess. I guess that's the right. Climate.
1: Well, I grew up in in suburban New York. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, same. Yeah, yeah, analogous climate i would yeah, say yeah, yeah um, interesting. and i didn't really think about that but yeah these funny little troughs were all these hardy types of plants many of which were small because they were the alpine version of some other common plant but yeah i mean they thrived in you know 400 feet above sea level in Mount Kisco, New York, <laughs> you know, in Westchester County. But the Edelweiss was always the 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 neatest, and it and like I said before, it came down from there. Was like a special. Everybody had like a little Edelweiss enamel pin, or a little ski badge, or a a charm and a charm bracelet. It was like the family thing. Although, ironically, after my grandmother, none of us ever traveled to Austria. So we had this like super powerful connection to our Austrian heritage. And we never went, or I, I should say, we haven't yet gone. So you've never been, you've never been to Austria. Never been to Austria. <laughs> yeah, been to oh, Germany. Man. Been to through you could, the Alps. You go. I was going to
0: ask if you've ever seen Edelweiss in the wild.
1: In in the wild, no. Uh no. I don't think that I have. I haven't either. And living in Switzerland, that's
0: pretty that's shocking. I. Yeah, I need to fix that.
1: Well, and it's funny because you asked me to like do a little cursory research. And I thought, well, what what can I find out about the Edelweiss flower? You yeah. know, it's an Edelweiss. That's what it is, right? Yeah. So, of course, when you look it up and you realize that there's, you know, tomes and tomes of remarkable trivia about probably anything. Um, yeah. But it's, it's an That's interesting like flower because, yeah, I mean, you think like, okay, well, whatever, a daisy, you know, what am I going to learn? What I did learn is that the Edelweiss is related to the daisy. It's a type of daisy, in the same oh, family yeah. as pretty neat sunflowers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and not only that, but it's like you like we both were were relating. Neither of us have ever actually seen an edelweiss out in the wild. It's a very rare and yet common flower. So it's not it's like a per, it's not protected. It's not endangered. But according to my research, and I guess neither of us can testify because we haven't been hiking around in our laterhosen spotting edelweiss although i I did wear lederhosen as a side trivia probably every day oh, right. until i was like two years old every day
0: well and you've never
1: been to austria off often <laughs> there's a lot of pictures of me and baby lederhosen <laughs> that's adorable yeah um but it's yeah apparently it's hard to spot like you don't see it a lot you don't come across it a lot even though it's you can grow it from a seed so you can easily like uh-huh you have access to Edelweiss. But what I learned was, uh, yeah, it's not, there are not abundant fields of Edelweiss growing.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I guess it makes sense because it grows so in relatively inhospitable places where there's just not a ton of like plant life anywhere. All the plant life is pretty small amongst rocky things. So um, yeah, you're not going to see it like a field of of flowers. Uh, Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, and the other the other thing that I thought was neat was actually the the variety in naming. So Edelweiss, the name, which means uh, like it, it literally means noble white. It's the, mm-hmm. the color of the flower, you know, is white. Um, but that was a name that caught on after Alpine tourism started to take off in the sort of like romantic wanderlust days of the nineteenth century. When all these people were like, oh, well, we got to go be inspired and write poems on top of Mont Blanc, you know, or Chamonix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I found out, actually, that the scientific name is lion's foot. And that in more ancient times, it was called the Woolflower. Oh.
0: That one makes sense. Because it's covered in hair. But the lion's foot is interesting.
1: Yeah. And yeah, right, le- right. Leontopodium uh, is per- apparently what it's called in latin which means lion's foot that
0: that links back to um episode two of um root Bound where we talked about the dandelion which is uh in almost every language is actually lion's tooth is what dand- hmm. dandelion is called. And in German, it's Löwenzahn, is what you call a dandelion, which means lion's tooth. Same yeah. thing in French and in Spanish. But I guess they're not related. I just thought that was interesting. We had a lion's foot and a lion's tooth, even though one's <laughs> a Latin name, one's a common name. But,
1: <laughs> well, um, it's funny because you think of a, a dandelion. Of here. Yeah, you, yeah, right. You think of a dandelion as sort of looking like, I mean, to me, it sort of suggests a, like a lion's mane. Like with the oh, yeah, yellow, yeah. There's lots you like, know, flower
0: animations of uh of like dandelions turning into little lions with their um lions I mean isn't that like in fantasia does that happen in fantasia
1: yeah maybe fanta or maybe uh should, should have alice in wonderland it's definitely bell oh, in yeah, some historic uh, Disney if, film if if,
0: <laughs> if you if you know what film has uh, animated dandelion turning into a lion email any other uh fun facts about edelweiss
1: you know that was the 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 most fun were all the different names for me anyway. Um, although it was funny on a, on a personal note, I guess it's not really a fun fact, but you know, in, in thinking of the Edelweiss as sort of like a, uh, I don't know, piece of my personal heritage. I thought it was neat that actually it is a type of sunflower slash daisy because my grandmother, the same grandmother from Austria, uh, who, you know, loved the Edelweiss, her favorite flower. Well, and this might not, you can correct me on this, but was actually the Black-Eyed Susan, which I think of as a type of daisy.
0: I think it's in the same family too. There's this family called the, I'm looking on Google now, but I also know this name, the Asteraceae. I'm really horrible at pronouncing Latin names. Yeah, like a star. Which are a big class of flowers and Black-Eyed Susans are would also be in the Asteraceae uh, family, I would believe,
1: and apparently in French, the edelweiss is known as the Alpine Star. Oh, or yeah, Star of the Alps, sense. or something like that. Uh, but that's all I got. It was. It's just such a neat. It was. Yeah. It was. It's just such a neat and bizarre plant. Uh, in its it, as as a um, sort of an example of adaptation this furry, weird, fuzzy flower and all the the speculation that I was reading about um, why it's covered in hair, which apparently is maybe to guard against ultraviolet light. And you think of like being on top of a mountain where edelweiss might grow tens of thousands of feet above sea level and the ultraviolet radiation is stronger. You know, it's funny. We don't, we think of ourselves as being either on the earth or in outer space But like when you climb a mountain, you're literally closer to space, (laughs) you know, like the atmosphere is thin, (laughs) you know, you're closer to the sun, even if it's an infinitesimal amount, like you are in fact closer, you know, to, to the sky, to the heavens than when you're not on top of a mountain. So I don't know. I I thought that was a, a, a neat kind of testament to the, to the, what's so remarkable about evolution and biology and just living things in general
0: yeah absolutely um yeah listener if you haven't seen edelweiss before or like an actual picture not just a drawing of it google it because it is a it is a funky looking flower like you know it it, i don't i can't think of another flower that looks like that with fuzzy and kind of the petals are kind of like thick and yeah it's it's really interesting looking and the adaptation for that super high Stuff kind of gives it this alien look. I, I think.
1: Yeah, it doesn't. It. I mean, it, the closest thing it makes me think of uh, more like sort of succulent varieties. Yeah, you know, it doesn't yeah. feel like a flower per se.
0: Totally, because it's so yeah.
1: textured and so barky and weird and you know hardy. Um, but yeah, very. It's it's very cool. Edelwald.
0: Well, do you do you mind if I tell you about
1: a plant? I would love to hear about. So interestingly, maybe the,
0: you're choosing. Maybe a little bit of a theme. You know, Edelweiss is a is a alpine plant, which those um they're not really deserts, but it's a desert like environment, right? There can be a lack of rain, a harsh environment. I chose a desert plant. Um and I'm trying to remember, maybe I'm wrong, but did you ever spend much time in California?
1: Yeah, well, I lived in L.A. for a couple of years. I My first that job was true. in in Los Angeles, right? Yeah,
0: I, th- I was remembering correctly. And so, uh, did you ever go out to the Mojave Desert while
1: you lived in Los Angeles? I I didn't go to the Mojave. Uh, no, not the Mojave Desert. I but spent the desert
0: time east of Los Angeles.
1: Oh, sure, yeah, and I've driven twice cross country through Nevada and Utah and pretty deserty places.
0: Have you ever been in the desert out in that direction after it rained?
1: hmm the the funniest memory i have of la is anytime it did rain people would like duck for cover and rain we're talking like as east coast people (laughs) you know there was like a drop of rain yeah it was like shut down but but to answer your question no i i can't think of a specific instance where i was knowingly in the desert after rainfall so if you're if
0: you're in definitely the mojave desert The Sonoran Desert, I believe, too. And there's another one, I think, in there that are all linked. I'm not as good with that. After a rain, there is this really particular smell that happens. Um, And I know this because when I was a kid, I lived in 29 Palms, California, which is uh, in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It is a marine town. My mom was in the Navy. And that's when I first experienced this. Um, After it rains, there's this particular smell. It's kind of sweet, kind of like a tangy smell. It's really hard to explain. And that smell comes from this plant, which the plant is, is colloquially called the creosote bush. Have you heard mm. of this plant before?
1: Yeah. I uh, thought you were going to say mesquite. <laughs> yeah. Which is a very distinctive desert smell, but yes, yeah. I've heard of the creosote bush. And, it, and, you know, I was
0: thinking, you know, I'm always trying to think now with this podcast or so what plants are out there that mean to me, one of the, one of the challenges with this is I'm on every episode. So I have to think of new plants all the time. And so I'm kind of going <laughs> right. back into my like childhood a little bit. And yeah, this is a plant that was just, it is everywhere in the, in the desert. It is like the most predominant plant in, in lots of deserts. And it, it has this really, makes this really special smell when it rains because the leaves are coated in this resinous material that has that smell. Um, And if you go up to a plant and you cup it around your hands and you, you like, you know, breathe on it go, and then smell, you can get that smell, which is really Hmm. It's a really pleasant smell. It's my favorite after rain smell. You know, I think every lots of places in the world have their own after rain smell. And they're all pretty pleasant, but it's my favorite for sure. Um, so so uh, a little bit of details about the plant. It is, um, so it's called the creosote bush, which I heard the word creosote the first time when I was a kid because of the bush. I didn't know what creosote was. Um, and I just even had to Google to remind myself exactly what it was. I knew it was like a some kind of chemical that's used to like waterproof uh wood essentially um they would use it to waterproof railroad ties or ships and stuff um but essentially go ahead
1: i was gonna say it's funny because i actually think of creosote as being the residue in your chimney from exactly burning wood and i only have a relationship with that word myself because when i was a kid we heated our house with wood-burning stoves every winter until the winter, our tr- chimney caught on fire. Oh, from the creosote buildup. Because there was, because no, we lived in this really old house, it's like two hundred years old, and I, who knows if anyone ever cleaned the chimney, or <laughs> it certainly didn't have a line. Or it was like an old stone chimney. Wow. Yeah, and there was like two hundred years of creosote, and the chimney caught, and the creosote itself catches on fire. Yeah, yeah. And so
0: was it like a giant like jet engine out of the top of your chimney? It was
1: pretty. It was pretty scary. It was. Yeah. I remember. It's funny because in my mind, I remember it simultaneously being in warm weather, but we wouldn't, there wouldn't have been, I don't think there would have been a reason to have the fire going in warm weather. So it must've been in the winter, but you know, you, you catch sight of it because it's, I mean, it's inside the chimney, which already is hot. Mm -hmm. So it's not like your house is on fire, although your house can burn down from a chimney fire. Yeah. But somebody, I think on the road driving by spotted black plumes of smoke coming out of the mm-hmm. chimney and stopped and knocked on the door and oh, was like hey your chimney's on fire. <laughs> oh, wow. And my remember my dad climbing on the roof. My dad had a machine shop and I remember him running he didn't you know it was like too much trouble to call the fire department so he ran into the machine shop, made this apparatus on his lathe really fast that fit onto the end of the garden hose and it had holes drilled in it like 360 degrees around this cylindrical yeah thing that he made nozzle that sprayed water you know at like a right angle from the hose so at the walls of the chimney and he climbed onto to the roof and stuffed the garden hose down the chimney oh with this gosh. thing on the end of it and put it out and then we never had a fire again but anyway i completely wow. derailed your point no
0: no no that's but that's that that's amazing
1: creosote that's my creosote story so
0: yeah creosote is a a let me see if i have a this example here, it is it is a material that is distilled from plant material or fossil fuels so it can be it's essentially wood tar or coal tar um, and so the first creosote was wood tar now that's made from fossil fuels sometimes and it's not as used I, may, I think it's still used but it's one of those coal, coal or, or, or fossil fuel byproducts but the wood tar part is what builds up in chimneys it's also apparently uh, and I have a quote from Wikipedia here. It is the principal chemicals responsible for the stability, scent, and characteristic flavor of smoked meat. Hmm. And it's the same process. And in fact, the name creosote is from the Greek, which is kreos for meat, and soter, or sota. I don't know how to pronounce Greek, which is preserver. So creosote means meat preserver.
1: Wow. Yeah. So that, that was a fun I fact I learned today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, That that's a
0: good one. <laughs> yeah. So, so creosote bush smells like creosote it doesn't have it it doesn't that's why they named it in my i don't this is not true but if i made up the story in my mind my imagination is these guys who are out there building a railroad line using creosote to waterproof the ties and they know the smell and then they smell the bush and like oh that's the creosote bush you know so that, that may not be true exactly but something like that happened um it has some other names. It's sometimes also called greasewood, which also makes sense because the leaves are this sticky greasiness. And then also, I guess, medicinally, it's called chaparral. Um, it has some other hmm. some other names, which I forgot to write down the other Spanish names. But its Latin name is uh Larea tridentata, and tridentata because it has three leaves on the end of each stem. The leaves are, are very small and... Um, covered it, like I said, in this and material because this plant has all sorts of super cool adaptations for retaining wa- its water and being very good at absorbing water because it's a desert plant. And because it's so successful at gaining water, it can really become like the predominant plant in an area. Um, if you look at a satellite image of an area with creosote, it almost looks like they're evenly spaced. It almost looks geometric because no plants can grow within the boundary of that creosote bush until it gets to another creosote bush so like it basically takes all the water from its mm. area of influence and then by the time it's hard for any other plants to germinate in that area and then the next one will kind of be there so it looks really kind of interesting if you look at a satellite image of it so it has a few different methods for retaining water one is um it always keeps a southeast orientation and i didn't ever notice this as a kid cuz who does but if you look most of the leaves tend to face southeast Because it tries to do the majority of its photosynthesis in the morning when it's not too hot. And then it opens up its stomata and is able to like photosynthesize. And then by the time the sun gets really hot, it closes. And so the tiny pores, the tiny leaves, and the resin coating keep the water in the plant during the hottest
1: parts Mm. of the day. (laughs) That's amazing. You know, yeah. I mean, just the number of animals or creatures, plants included, you know, that exhibit some type of locomotion but don't have brains yeah but i mean in a sense i suppose sort of in an analog mechanical sense are like making decisions totally like like my mom has another plant it looks like a shamrock it's like a three leafed the three triangular leaves i don't know what it's called on these long beautiful fronds might be some kind of a fern And these little shamrocks open and close with the daylight. So like at night, this plant like goes to sleep. Yeah. It folds up like an umbrella. And then as soon as the sun comes out, whether or not it reacts to the light or the time of day, which would be interesting, I don't know. It opens up and it's like daytime. It wakes up, you know?
0: Yeah, that that kind of like um, uh, stimulus and response of plants is super interesting to me and kind of like what that decision-making in quotes is and i've talked about this on a few episodes already of like how different plants are from us and it's hard for us to really like try to think like a plant um in the first episode of Rubin, we talked about the mimosa plant which is a plant that is like if you touch it it folds up um which mm. is really interesting and 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 further stuff which we didn't get to as deeply in the episode but i've read about later is they've been able to do tests with how it gets touched and actually have been able to show that it learns. So it can learn that a stimulus is not is not a threat and will stop responding to it, but will respond to a different kind of touch stimuli. So, um, you know, that's an example of a plant that's learning on kind of a fast scale, like a scale that humans and, and animals can like work on. But most plants operate in a much slower scale. And this idea of like the creosote bush, saying, so, you know, understanding that I need to face Southeast because that's going to be the most optimal way that I can photosynthesize without losing all my water and become a very successful plant in the desert. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. Wild.
0: So yeah, there was, um, you know, if you, if you look, as I said before, it's hard for other plants to grow around and they, they thought for some time that, that the roots were, um, were, you know, exuding some kind of, you know, inhibitor that was keeping other plants from growing. But I guess the most common theory now is it's just so good at absorbing water that no other plants can get any water near a creosote bush. And so it just just keeps it, which is cool. Um, Let's see, I've got some notes here. I think my last note is apparently the creosote bush, creosote bushes, some of them are among the oldest living things on earth. There is one creosote bush that they call the king clone that is estimated to be 11,700 years old. And it's called king clone because... The way that it works is, I guess, when a creosote bush gets to about 90 years old, its crown will, will break and will separate and will basically turn into different bushes. And those will do that and those will do that. And so there's this giant ring in this area in California that is all this one bush that is 11,700 years old.
1: I think i recently read about that, actually. Oh, yeah. I think I don't know if it was National Geographic or something, but there, there was, yeah, some... Botanist or whatever going out into the desert looking for this, and they wouldn't tell you like exactly where they were, yeah, yeah, because right. it was like, Hello, this is an 11,000 year old tree, yeah, we don't want tourism, yeah, to kill it. To damage it,
0: yeah. So, there is this, <laughs> you know? um, uh, I think it's called the King Clone Protected Area now. That is this area that it's kind of a random patch of desert in the town called Lucerne Valley. And it, if you look, I looked it up on the map, it's this patch. The only reason it's there is because that's like where this plant lives, and they want to give it enough space to grow. And it's kind of like this creosote bush preserve, which is yeah, really cool. Yeah, I, it was a plant. Oh, maybe a couple of things. It's got little yellow flowers, and leaking a little bit back to the edelweiss, the seed pods are fuzzy. So it's got these hmm. little small white fuzzy seed pods, which I guess uh, disperse by the wind and help the seeds move around. But it's got a fuzziness too. Um,
1: so, well, it's funny. Because I I had two thoughts, as you were talking, that I think my, now that I really think about it, my awareness of the out Bush actually comes from having read the book Dune by Frank Herbert, which of course now is the spectacular, another spectacular feature film, um, which I liked a lot, by the way. Um, But I'm a huge Dune fan, and it was funny because Dune, really, in Frank Herbert's view Was an ecological. It was a story about ecology. Uh You know, not not really a space opera sci-fi novel. Um, And in the book, he really sparsely goes into anything. Even though they're on different planets and whatever, there are no aliens. Mm -hmm. There's no. There's none of this sort of fantastical elements that you see in other science fiction properties and at a certain point he's itemizing the sort of native wildlife of this desert planet and i think the creosote bush is one of the things that he that he mentions oh wow interesting not not knowing anything that you just outlined about creosote bushes but thinking again of my chimney fire story <laughs> which is the only thing i know about creosote uh huh but another personal anecdote really quick yeah sure about extracting tar from plants was another project that my dad and I did once, where he was really interested in like Bronze Age technology, for like a minute, you uh-huh. know. And he was one of these guys who, you know, he wanted to figure out like, okay, well, how did this caveman do X, Y, Z? And when they found again back to the Edelweiss, speaking of, I think it was Switzerland where they found Utsi, the Ice Man, the oh yeah, the guy yep. who was frozen in the glacier. Yeah, yeah. Um. And they thought he was a dead skier, but he'd been there for like 12,000 years or something. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, right. He was like completely preserved in the in the glacier. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they found all his stuff, you know, in his, I guess not his pockets, but you know, ar- around his person. And one of the things was this axe with a copper axe head that was held together with birch tar. And so oh, my okay. dad was like, well, let's make some birch tar. That sounds kind of fun. So he spent yeah. the whole summer collecting birch bark. And you needed like, 20 pounds of it and Uh I mean birch bark is like the consistency of paper so you can Uh imagine how much birch bark (laughs) (laughs) like a stack 10 feet high is like a pound of birch bark so we get all this birch bark I'm exaggerating of course but we get all this birch bark together and he he didn't figure out but he learned how some scientists or anthropologists or whatever figured out how these old bronze age people made and I mean it's really remarkable because it's this really hard stuff like this the essence of the creosote bush you yeah. know, used to waterproof things that's like it's like epoxy i mean it's like wow. no different than these acrid chemicals that we have nowadays and the way we made it was we built this wood fire and made a little uh, dirt mound in the bottom with a like a tin can buried in it and on top of the tin can We had another tin a coffee can basically like a cafe Bustelo coffee can with rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls of birch bark just stuffed into this coffee can and a little teeny hole poked in the bottom and we built a campfire on top of the coffee can, you know, and however long it took to heat up. I mean, it might've taken an hour. We sat there in our lawn chairs drinking beer, watching this coffee can get hot because that's the kind of thing we used to do. Yeah. And uh, the bark inside would ignite inside this coffee can and, you know, I guess somehow it would create a vacuum or something, you know, the air would get sucked out. And in the process of cooling, this birch bark vapor, like the smoke produced by burning birch bark, would distill into this black tar that sort of smelled like creosote or I thought of like tea coil. I think
0: it is. I think it is technically creosote, what you were making there. It's just birch creosote, which maybe has a much stickier property than something other, but because, because creosote is distilled plant burning material essentially. And in that process So that's what you guys were making. So, wow.
1: Yeah. And I mean, yeah. And I don't know if birch, some caveman figured out that birch was the best stuff to make, or just birch trees or just what was around, but we made it and it, it you could paint it on. We made our little bronze bronze man axe and wrapped it up with rawhide, and then we coated it in this birch tar. And when it dried, it was like as hard as steel. I mean, literally like epoxy. Wow.
0: That's and aside cool. from
1: the coffee can, you know, we did it in the same yeah, <laughs> supposedly yeah. the same method that utsi did twelve thousand years ago or whenever he was around.
0: That's super cool. That That's a really fun story. That sounds like something I would try at some point. Um, really interesting. One other interesting, since we're linking disparate ideas here, maybe to kind of link back to the beginning, you mentioned Dune. And in the beginning, you also mentioned H.R. Giger. And H.R. Giger designed the original sets for the Dune that became David Lynch's Dune, and then David Lynch scrapped all that stuff. But in, in H.R. Giger's museum in Gruyere, Switzerland, they have a bar that has the chairs that were designed for the Harkonnen family and they're very creepy and stuff. So anyway, just wanted to link I, back in that Switzerland to Dune story.
1: I love it. And whatever Giger's relationship with the Edelweiss might have been, <laughs> I'm sure he knew all you know, about it.
0: I, I'm pretty sure that there is some Edelweiss and some Giger paintings. I'll have to put that on my uh, blog when I post this. I'm pretty sure he did it because he, he as as a weird and strange old man he was, he felt very Swiss and uh, there's actually a famous painting of him that is called uh, alien fondue, which he drew the aliens from the alien eating fondue.
1: I think I might've, or well, I don't want to make it up. I was going to say, I think I might've seen that, but yeah. so, he, uh, I think yeah, he was very, he was very, he was very proudly Swiss. He's super, super proudly. Yeah. Swiss. yeah um, interesting.
0: Well, anyway, I think, I think that, that was like brought us pretty full circle.
1: Yeah. I did, Well, couldn't have well, planned it better, huh?
0: <laughs> indeed. Well, well. thanks for talking about Edelweiss and Creosote Bush with me.
1: I re- thank you for inviting me. This, it's been fun.
0: There is, in all things, a pattern that is part of our universe— It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. These qualities you find always in that the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons, the way sand trails along a ridge, in the branch clusters of the creosote bush, of the pattern of its leaves. We try to copy these patterns in our lives and in our society, seeking the rhythms, the
1: dances, the forms that comfort,
0: Yet, it is possible to see peril in the finding of ultimate perfection. It is clear that the ultimate pattern contains its own fixity. In such perfection, all things move towards death. Frank Herbert, Dune. The music that we're listening to now is called Shai Hulud from the album Rama by Lynx, L-Y-N-X-X. And Lynx is a project by Christian Grigascota, today's guest on Rootbound. And Shai Halud is also the name of the sandworm of doom. My guest on today's episode of Rootbound was Christian Kriegeskota. Christian is a Pittsburgh-based composer and performing arts professional. He's also the one who composed the theme music to Rootbound. You can find more of his music at links.bandcamp.com. That's L Y-N-X-X. Don't forget the extra X.bandcamp.com. Rootbound is hosted by me, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota, who we just heard from. Fake ads by David Lonnie. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside, why don't you pull on your Lederhosen and go hiking into the Alps and see if you can discover the elusive Edelweiss?
1: Rocket, it's just arugula!